Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 58 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Today, Pat is from Nashville. Last week, I was from San Diego. So we, we as noted, we try to get these uh, podcasts taped. We have three arguments today. Uh, two are from the Illinois 2nd District and covered today because the 2nd, as we have noted, has often been a very quick district to issue decisions. The other case is from the United First States. First district trying Court. to catch up, Dan. It is. There- Lately, they've yeah. they've they've gone from they weren't ever like tortoise, but they certainly weren't the hare that uh, is right. the second district. They're kind of somewhere in between the two now. That's that's exactly right. And the other case is from the United States Supreme Court, which began its October 2021 term last Monday. It's an armed uh, career criminal act case. A very interesting cases we'll get into. Uh, I wrote about a few of the arguments at the Supreme Court in my. Chicago Daily Law Bulletin column that will be published on Monday. And Pat, I, I wanted to uh, just inform you, I, late yesterday in the mail, I got a certificate or a notification from W3 Awards, which is a podcast award uh, uh, platform that we had submitted, I think, back in April or May uh, or June, or I can't remember now when, uh, our, our podcast for General mm-hmm. Series Law and Legal Services. And we were informed that uh, we have been awarded uh, a gold uh, for uh, that category. So oh, wow. whatever that's worth. Yeah. C- so c- there congratulations we are. to us. Yeah. We're legit, I guess, whatever, you know, whatever W3 is in the event. Exactly. We, we, the, 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 as as uh, the Seinfeld episode said, none of these rankings are, you know, official. Um, right. And referring to right. uh, world's greatest dad. Right. We probably all get golds, but none of the event. Exactly. <laughs> the, well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So the first case today is West Bend Mutual Insurance versus Community Unit School District 300, a case in the se- second district involving questions of coverage for additional insureds and a very interesting argument. And uh, for the Community Unit School District 300, Dan Zollner argued, I, I started my career at Lord Bissell working with him and, and his group. And so maybe we can have him come on sometime. Uh, the second case is from the Supreme Court, Wooden, ver- Wooden versus U.S., involving a question of the Armed Career Criminal Act. And, and the meaning of occasion with some of the most entertaining questioning from the justices uh, we've seen in some time. And we'll get into that with references to mob bosses, Jesse James, and other esoteric subjects. Uh, the third case today is Olson versus the Centers for Food and Ankle Surgery Limited. No, f- foot, foot, not foot, not food. <laughs> foot. Did I say food? Yeah, foot. You said food. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why, why I said food, but foot. And uh, Dietary, not culinary. It's a it's another interesting second district case involving the concept of, of continuing continued negligent conduct and a host of other procedural issues that took place. Now let's turn to West Bend. And here uh, questions include does a school district named as an additional insured on a policy issued to the Boys and Girls Club have coverage for alleged willful and wanton conduct in hiring, retaining, and supervising? with regard to alleged sexual abuse of a participant in a boys and girls club program 
And as Pat will discuss, uh, a lot of the justices were asking about how you can have uh, negligent sexual molestation but uh, and, and how they were reading the policy. What duty to provide notice of occurrence is required under the policy? And is that duty different for the named insured than for the additional insured? There was much talk about uh, provisions 2A, B, and C in this policy. Those are the questions to be considered by the Illinois Appellate Court Second District when it decides West Bend Mutual Insurance versus Community Unit School District 300. According to the insurer, the underlying complaint only alleged willful and wanton misconduct, not for the abuse itself, but for hiring, retaining, supervising, and the like. Under Illinois law, willful and wanton conduct is a species of negligence that can range to intentional conduct, but that was not alleged here. The trial court granted summary judgment to the insured and the insurer appealed. There was a sexual abuse endorsement that ensured negligent hiring, retention, and supervision, and the court questioned counsel for appellant closely on what that endorsement covered if it does not cover the allegations of this complaint. As to notice, the school district did not advise the insurer for many months following its receipt of information, but counsel for the insured contended that it was not required to under the language of the policy as it only required the named insured to provide notice, not the additional insured. Pat, with that, tell us about this fascinating oral argument. Thanks, Dan. Uh, the, let's start with why the plaintiff would allege this in this way. Let's, let's presume, for the purposes of this conversation, that the insurer's characterization of the complaint is correct, that it only alleges willful and wanton misconduct. Now, Counsel for the insured disputes that. Uh, they say there are allegations of negligence, but let's let's stick with what the insurer has to say. Let's let's play on their field. And and the reason why you would allege this is because in a circumstance like this, the school district would only be liable for willful and wanton misconduct. They would be immune for allegations of negligence. So you have to this heightened duty under the Tort Immunity Act in Illinois to get at. That's why they allege it this way. So yep. the questions that came, and in particular from Justice Shostak, although the other justices as well, but from in particular Justice Shostak, asking a couple things. Number one, in this regard, we'll get to the notice in a second, but with regards to this, okay, if it's willful and wanton, but isn't willful and wanton just a species of negligence? Isn't this just, and they're not alleging intentional conduct, and you have right. this endorsement. So what is this endorsement doing? And so then she starts reading from the endorsement. And she reads, and then she stops at the word negligent and not doesn't say what kind of negligence it covers. <laughs> and it's right. negligent hiring, training, supervision of, the, of this kind that would be because it was apparently a teacher. Did I get this right? I gathered this right. It, it was a teacher that was working with yeah. the Boys and Girls Club. Um, it was unclear if this was on school property or not, but in any event, it was this teacher that allegedly committed these acts and no one was talking about whether the acts themselves were covered. Plainly, they weren't. They were they were unintentional. I'm oh, sorry. They were intentional. Sorry. They were intentional right. when they spoke. Uh, so that is what we're what talking it, about. It, what we're talking about is whether the school, bre you know, whether it breached its duty in a willful and wanton manner in training and supervising and hiring and retaining this person. Uh, and so how you read the policy really matters. And how the allegations match up, because what determines whether there's coverage or not is by matching the allegations to the policy to determine if there's a duty to defend or not. Now, the trial court held that there was. 
um, principally, it seemed, because the the allegations were of such a nature that they alleged things within this endorsement. Uh, but you have to read the entire endorsement. And did they allege, they only alleged Wolf and Wanton? Why do you have to cover that? Because Wolf and Wanton can range, as Dan said, from gross negligence to intentional conduct. Right. And I don't know. Uh, it's at the duty to defend stage. It, there's a principle also in the law of, in Illinois insurance law that the the inartful drafting by the plaintiff doesn't bind coverage. Um, that you can, that you got to be, the pleading has to be liberally construed. And then you marry that with the policy, which if you're dealing with an exclusion, which we're not here, we're dealing with an insuring agreement, uh, then it, it's construed in favor of the, in, in favor of the insured. So it, perhaps they should have pled negligence, but that wouldn't have gotten them anywhere because that would have, uh, uh, they would have gotten, they had immunity on those. So that's why you pleaded as Wolf on one. What's Turn, our, turn to the next issue, which is the negligence, or sorry, the notice rather. And the notice is well, they, they're claiming they disclaim coverage entirely because you knew about this and you didn't tell us. The question is, did they have a duty to? The way the policy is written, it's really unclear as to who, quote, you is in this, exclu- in this condition right. because the you is defined as the named insured who was the Boys and Girls Club, not the school district. So we don't have to provide you notice at all. And the other argument they made is that Hold it. We didn't even know about this alleged conduct until years after it occurred. So we can't be on the hook for that. And we also can't be on the hook for willfully and wantonly hiring, retaining this person during that period of time that we didn't know. So if we didn't know, that has to be at best negligence, which has to be covered. Um, so right. it couldn't be. So we dovetail back, right back into the covered, uh, what, what's covered and what's not. And another principle of Illinois law. Again, I, I, all the principles I'm pulling out today are are favorable to insureds. Uh, please note, uh, our principles that if you're in for one, you're in for all. That if an insured, right. sorry, if an insurer has to cover one count or one aspects of a complaint, then they have to cover the whole thing, even if some of it might be excluded or 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 what have you. So that was where I, I it was your former colleague Zellner who was arguing path of the district, correct, Dan? Right. Right. Yeah, so that was, he was where arguing he was going. Also is that, a and B. Right. He he was arguing, say, hey, they're in yeah. for this count. They got to be in for everything. Uh, they can't just pick and choose right. which parts they're going to be in uh, and say, because we're out of this, we're out of the rest of it. And that's not, it works the other way. It works against the insurer in that regard. If you're in for some, in for one, you're in for all. That's the that's the general right. principle. Um, but a very interesting case in terms of how you plead things uh, under Illinois tort pleading, and we're going to get to some pleading in, in the third case we talk about, but also how you plead things in order to get yourself coverage. And this is a situation where the insured and the underlying plaintiff are on the same page. They want coverage for different reasons, of course, but they both want coverage. Right. Uh, and, and this is so they join up in these kinds of things and work together sometimes to get coverage. Dan, was there other things that we needed to talk about with regards to this case? No, I don't think so. I think you covered it all. And, uh, you know, uh, Zollner on rebuttal talked about two A, B, and C. And like you said, uh, U was in, in A and B. C uh, talks about U and any other impacted insured or some language like that. So I, I, I think you covered it all and the principles that are at play here. It, it's a, it's an important and interesting case. I think the outcome is pretty straightforward. 
but uh, it, it's it's one of those things that kind of covers very important and basic principles of Illinois insurance law. So that's why we yep. wanted to talk about it. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with something we don't talk about very much, criminal law. Right. We're back for segment two of episode 58 of the Podium and Panel podcast to talk about an Armed Career Criminal Act case. Now, Dan can tell you better than I can, but you can't really have a Supreme Court term recently without two things. A water rights dispute between two states and an Armed Career Criminal Act case. Have I got it about right, Dan? Those are studies every year and. It's hard to believe that 230-something years in the experiment, the water rights cases continue, not so much the the armed uh, criminal, but the water rights cases, right? We, you know, the, the There was a water rights courts. case heard on the first Monday of October this year, and there was an Armed Career Criminal Act case heard the first Monday of this year. I can't think of something yep. more mundane than riparian rights. <laughs> I am not interested in it. The court isn't interested in it. They keep sending it off to special masters to do because they don't want to actually do the work themselves. Um, and I, and done, I, they did it in I, New I Mexico versus they did it in the New Mexico versus Texas case. They did it in the Florida versus Georgia case, and now they've done it in the Mississippi versus Tennessee case. Enough about riparian rights. Armed right. Career Criminal Act. So, of all the Armed Career Criminal Act cases, somehow they never reached this issue. So let's talk about this issue in Wooden versus the United States. It's a case about uh, one, uh, one of the classic lines of what is the occasions clause of the Armed Career Criminal Act. The facts set, fo- set forth by OIA are, in 1997, William Wooden broke into a minim- mini storage facility in Georgia and stole from 10 different units. That's an enterprising fellow, it resulting is. in 10, a- 10 counts of burglary, I can- a word I can't say. Burglary. Uh, that, there you go. That's that's right. To which the to which he pled guilty. Then in 2014, a plainclothes officer went to Wooden's home and where he witnessed Wooden in possession of a rifle. Wooden was arrested and charged in state court with a felon being a felon in possession of a firearm. But the case was dismissed when the district attorney noted that there was no probable cause for Wooden's arrest. Not not uh, to be deterred. Wooden was subsequently char- charged by federal indictment with being a felon in possession of a firearm in violation of 18 U.S.C. 922G1 and 924E. I know them well. After Wooden was was found guilty, the district court found during his sentencing hearing that Wooden qualified as an armed career criminal under 18 U.S.C. 924E based upon his conviction of 10 counts of burglary and sentenced him to 15 years imprisonment in court as the enhancement. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit affirmed finding that Wooden's prior burglaries were separate from each other despite occurring as part of a sim- single criminal spree. The question presented is this. Are offenses committed as a part of a single criminal spree, but subsequently in time committed on occasions different from one another, as it says in the statute, for purposes of sentencing enhancement under the Armed Career Criminal Act? Dan, Tell us about this oral argument and some of the crazy hypotheticals that the justices from across the political spectrum came up with. And it was it was quite the the scene. And so, um, 
As Pat said, ACCA provides sentence enhance, enhancements for felons who commit crimes with firearms if they're convicted of certain crimes three or more times. And the question and oral argument is is really worth a listen uh, with some some of the greatest lines coming out of the case. As the justices, we, we, you know, if we were going to play part of this, we just play the whole thing. The yeah. argument is just entertaining. I mean, I, heard, I listened to the beginning of it, Dan, and I hear armed criminal, career act, criminal act, and I kind of roll my eyes and go, oh, God, I got to listen to this. And then you start and then I started the, and I was thoroughly entertained. Yeah. Uh, and, and you should be. Um, and, and the question here is this occasions clause, uh, the uh, ACCA uh, requires with uh, requires that there be three or more times uh, and whether uh, they have to be three separate occasions. And so one of the questions asked was by Justice Kagan. She says, suppose that there was a crime boss and he was a good multitasking crime boss and he had a few phones in front of him. He's sitting in his office one day. And on one phone, he's arranging a sale of illegal drugs. And on another phone, he's letting the killing of a competing crime boss. And on another phone, he's involved in an illegal gambling operation. And they're she, all going she knows a whole lot about, about these uh, about these criminals. Well, you know, she she, she, she may. I mean, that's uh, you know, she, she, she uh, comes comes right out of some of those cases. Um, yeah. And they're all going very close in time to each other. Single occasion or three occasions. Um, and then um, the, the appellant's advocate posited this case, though, is the molten core of a single episode. We would urge the court to decide at least that much. Uh, Justice Alito then said, what, what in the heck is an episode? Uh, uh, he, Justice he asked Breyer, that several times. He did. Uh, Justice Breyer, uh, uh, as he's apt to do, came up with his own analogy. He compared Jesse James to his cousin, Harry James. Uh, noting that the argument being made and compared as being like Jesse James robbing a single train, but uh, uh, involving many people versus Harry James on separate occasions going to uh, uh, trains. Uh, as Pat said, this is just uh, something else. Um, there, there, there were hypotheticals about dark and moonless nights. Um, and then there was an, uh, this following exchange regarding the Sixth Amendment. Mr. Kadem said, as I understand, uh, this court's Sixth Amendment jurisprudence, I think there's a concern, but it's not a directly at issue in this case. Justice Thomas said, that'll be your next case. <laughs> Mr. Kadem said, I hope so, and laughter ensued. Um, uh, th th there was, uh, um, uh, as I mentioned, what is the multiple court of an episode, the, the, the analogy to Jesse James robbing a single bank, a uh, single train. Um, Justice Breyer then said, he, everybody knows what Jesse James did because uh, he's seen movies <laughs> as if movies are historical. You can't make this stuff up. Like, this is no, you crazy. Can't. Justice Breyer's getting his history from movies. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Uh, Justice Gorsuch said that these dark and moonless night hypotheticals that were being used are hard. Uh, counsel for petitioners said, I feel like this is a, a, a law school exam. Um, Justice Gorsuch asked a question: Who thinks that? Um, and, and, and this is in relation to let's let's you know go back to the substance. Let's talk about the Petty case a little bit. Yeah, and, and, which was kind of what kind of spurns this this debate. Um, you want to tell us about the Petty case, Dan? No, you can. Why don't okay, you? Okay, so the, so the yeah. Petty case involves a guy that rolls up on three people and he robs them with he robs them all three of them with a gun, right? Right. And he takes their money and takes their stuff. One act or three. Right. And I believe it, the court held that, that that was one, right? That was one because it was all related in time and temporally. And, and yeah, same and so thing. how is that different from 
the I, I I go into the storage unit as someone said. You you and your Confederates say hey, this is going great. Why don't we go to the next one? Why don't we go to the next one? Why don't we go to the next one? And they did that ten times in this case back in 1997, robbing each of these mini mini units. So then the the, the dark and moonless night hypotheticals show up as because counsel for the for the for the defendant kept saying you know criminal opportunity a criminal episode. So I, I think it was justice. Chief Justice Roberts that started with, or maybe it was Justice Thomas, started with the, okay, it's a dark night and the street light goes out. And the criminal, he 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 realizes this is an opportunity. So he uh he waits underneath that and he does this on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. He robs one person each day, one one event or three. <laughs> and that was right. kind of and it went from there. Or it's just a dark night, not the street lights out. And he does it on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. One event or three. Right. Um, and the reason why three matters is because that's what gets you to sufficient numbers of criminal right. acts in order to have the enhancement. You have to have three felonies in order to be to get this this enhancement. And the Sixth Amendment problem that Dan is talking about is this is found by the judge. Um, right. And, and so that's why this is so difficult is because a jury doesn't find whether you committed three acts or one or ten one. in the case of Mr. Wooden or one. Uh, and the who thinks like that is like, you can't possibly believe that this is, you know, uh, 10 different acts. This is one. Right. <laughs> he did it all at the same time. You know, um, it's, it, and it gets confusing because as we know, you know, it, it's, it's like we've talked about with other things where, uh, you know, the, the, the criminal, you know, he got charged with 10 counts of robbery. So, right. That, that, I think that's the real struggle here, right. Is that. Right, but it was all committed at one time, right? So, uh, but they don't use the word count. the The statute right. uses the word occasions. occasions. Right, and and I agree with you that uh, you know it, it's it's you know again if if you if if you robbed a bank and and you know uh, Dog Day Afternoon, for example, and you and you committed all those things, it's part of all one occasion, right? Because it's Continuous they thing. They committed kidnapping. They committed bank robbery. They committed, bur- you know, robbery. All these things. Uh, right. Probably felon in possession too while they were at it. Uh, right. But it's all one thing. Right. And it, and you know that that hypothetical about Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the dark night seems to me that again those are three different things, right? Because they're not right. continuous. It's not the part of one occasion, as opposed to here where he went into a storage facility, he was enterprising, and ransacked ten things in one you know, one fell swoop, you know, while he, while, while he was that, in there. Right. And contrast that with Justice Kagan's multitasking crime boss. Yes, he's committing right. them three times, but they're completely unrelated crimes. He's doing right. murder. He's doing <laughs> drug deal. He's doing uh, gambling. I mean, those are three different right. things with three different people. The fact he's doing them in the same place doesn't matter. He's, those right. are three unrelated cr- occasions. Right. And in that case, under RICO and stuff, the, the crime boss would be facing RICO charges, right? Because there's a conspiracy. And he'd, have a different set of, he'd have a different set of enhancements. You're right. It's a different set, set of enhancements. So a very interesting case. As Pat said, uh, we typically don't cover criminal. We, we wouldn't normally cover uh, the, the career criminal act, but uh, he, he started listening to it. And as I do, I listen to them. And boy, as soon as you get into this, uh, 
you know, the two minutes of introductory comments. The, the other thing I want to say about the Supreme Court, and and uh, I predicted it wrong last week in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. I talked to Pat about this. Clarence Thomas had made very clear he was not going to uh, be doing the free-for-all. And lo and behold, in every case, water rights to uh, the uh, CIA uh, uh, dark spot case, uh, which is also very interesting. Um, you know, I, I listened to that and uh, uh, the, some of the justices towards the end, including Gorsuch and others, uh, suggested that the detainee be interviewed. Um, and, and the government kept coming back and saying, well, his, his lawyers can advise him of progress. And, and the court was not buying it. They kept saying, you, you got to interview this guy. He should be interviewed about the conditions, about a black ops uh, in Poland. Uh, but in each 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 case uh, last week, the five cases, I think uh, universally, uh, Justice Thomas asked the first question of both advocates in each case, even in the water rights case. So um, an interesting change in things. Uh, there's a it's free come for out of all his shell. It only took him 30 years. Yeah. And, and a change and, in the uh, rules, it, it, too changing the rules. And uh, th there's also, as part of the free-for-all, uh, Pat and I exchanged about this, is that uh, we returned somewhat. Uh, we haven't seen it in several terms. Uh, one justice asking a series of questions. And when Scalia was there, it used to be m much more common. Uh, but in recent years, you don't see that too often because there there's such limited time and in, in, in the free-for-all. Justices usually bounce off each other. But in this free-for-all, we saw more of a flavor of uh, one justice asking a series of questions uh, of witness uh, of the advocate. So I think we've about covered this case, but again, it's uh, if you have a chance, if, if you listen to one Supreme court oral argument in, in your lifetime, uh, this is one to, to uh, listen to, um, you know, in, in, in the last term they used Jenga and some other things, but this was really uh, cultural references and just the, the crime bosses and Jesse James and it was, other it was very, it was very, very entertaining. Uh, took you back to first year criminal law. So it did. All right. So with that, take our take our next break and come back with segment three. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners! If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail .com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We are back for segment three of episode 58 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And our third case today is Olson versus the Centers for Foot and Ankle Surgery Limited. This case involves the issues of a continuing course of negligent conduct the Foxcroft rule, 2622 affidavits, waiver, forfeiture, concessions at oral argument, a continuing theme in our podcast is that, and relation back doctrine, a boatload packed in here. There's lots of appellate issues here in this medical malpractice case. Uh, the plaintiff had surgery by the defendant doctor in 2011 and then allegedly continued care through 2013 when a second surgery was performed. The plaintiff filed suit in 2015, and the complaint, the initial complaint uh, before amendment, the plaintiff alleged the 2000 surgery was negligent, but then disclosed an expert who pointed to the 2011 surgery as also being negligent. The trial court barred reference to the 2011 surgery as violative of the two-year statute of limitations in Illinois 
for claims against physicians. We've talked about that before in this show. The plaintiff filed an amended complaint and, and several others that did not reference the 2011 surgery. The case was At least dismissed. not directly. And at least not directly. And the plaintiff appealed. On appeal, the defense contended that the plaintiff waived reference to the 2000 care because uh, it was in violation of the rules set forth by the Illinois Supreme Court and the Foxcroft Townhouse Owners Association versus Hoffman Rossner Corp from 1983 because the plaintiff did not reference the 2011 care on the amended complaint that was not preserved for appeal, uh, that the plaintiff did not reference the alleged continuing care on the complaint. And as Pat will talk about at oral argument, there was a debate about whether there was actually any care between 2000 and 2013. The 2622 affidavit of merit did not reference the 2011 surgery. The relation back doctrine did not apply and was waived because it was not raised below. The defense also asserted that it would be prejudiced because they had proceeded with 13 depositions under the view that only the 2000 surgery was being complained about. But if the plaintiff is allowed to proceed with the 2011 surgery claims, the depositions and other discovery will have to be redone. And again, the, the uh, advocates argued about whether that, that was in fact the case. Pat, why don't you tell us about this interesting second district oral argument? Thanks, Dan. And uh, it, it, this really is uh, a, ver- a veritable cornucopia of appellate issues. So why don't we just take them in order in which we outlined them there? And that's the Foxcroft rule. So it seemed that at a certain point, plaintiff had alleged or that there this 2011 surgery and just so you make sure you get the timeline right 2011 surgery 2013 surgery 2015 complaint which would mean the 2011 surgery is out of the box yep. so the way foxcroft usually works is if a court strikes a count for whatever reason here it seems to be statute of limitations but it could be any reason and you want to proceed with that after filing an amended complaint you then write, count whatever, replead for the purposes of preserving to a, for appeal, you cite the Foxcroft case, and then you plead it as you want to. And that way the court doesn't get mad that you're do- replead it because they usually are told, you don't replead that. Uh, right. you Because know, I dismissed that with prejudice. And you don't just replead <laughs> it. You have to say why you're doing it. And you do it. I'm doing it for appeal because if I don't, in my subsequent complaint, complaint it's gone. And then the Gone defendants know, waved it. I don't have to answer that because it's only being done for appeal. I don't have to answer those counts because I've already gotten those dismissed, but they're preserved. And so when we go up, I know that they're preserved. That's how you do it from a pleading perspective. Apparently that didn't happen here. They tried to argue that to, at 2013 and at all relevant times somehow referred to a 2011 surgery. Right. I think that's a bit dicey. It certainly isn't the kind of direct reference that would put everybody on notice that that's what you're intending to do. Right. I don't think that's going to work. Nope. So there's a right way to do it, and this seems to be not the right way. So then um, they also didn't allege in the complaint a specific allegation of course of continuing conduct. So the way the, the course of continuing negligent care works is that, let's suppose in this case, 2011 was negligent, 2013 was negligent, and he was cared for in between but you don't file your lawsuit to 2015. And the last time you saw the doctor was in 2013. The statute doesn't accrue in 2011 under Illinois' law of this kind, if you can get, if you can show continuing course of negligent conduct. It, it begins to accrue when you last saw the doctor. So this is in, 2000, in this case, in this hypothetical, 2013, which would make the 2015 filing 
you know, timely. Timely. We will, we'll, we'll take it as timely. So that's how this works. But they didn't allege anything. They didn't use the words. Why not use the words? Yes, it's a legal conclusion. Use the words so we know what you're talking about. They didn't do that. <laughs> no. Dan mentioned the 2622 affidavit. So 2622 affidavit is 735 ILCS 5-2-622 is a statute that is designed to require, well, not designed, it requires an affidavit of merit when you're suing a doctor or, or other healing art malpractice. So it applies to dentists, it applies to hospitals, these kinds of things. And what the um, 2622 affidavit has to say is that you have a, a physician who says that, or a person in this field that says that what you did was negligent, you can proceed. The 2622 affidavit in this case doesn't reference the 2011 surgery. And the court's like, well, how how that how can you claim that there's merit with regards to an allegation of malpractice when you have an alleged malpractice in that at that time frame with your 2622? And there was some arguing about whether that has to be included or not. Um, it seems to me that it would, um, yeah. a whole other surgery, but I'm not an expert in this. Uh, I don't handle, I mean, I've handled some, but not much medical malpractice. I, I, I got to think, though, that you need to at least reference something. <laughs> If you're going to claim it later. The, the that, next, that seems seems reasonable to me. It, we'll see what the court has to say either, about but, it. Yeah. And then there was yeah. this relation back doctrine. They argued that, hey, you know, we re, we pled this, but it relates back to our original pleading, and we still get to we still get to refer to it. But they didn't raise this until appeal. They didn't raise it below, which sounds to me like waiver, if there ever could be waiver. So that's kind of how all this works out. Um, it, it's a very um, it's for, for young lawyers, it's a very helpful discussion of maybe not how not to do things. Maybe, maybe the plaintiff will prevail here, but have to go through a lot of heartache yeah. in between the, the, uh, the dismissal in the trial court and, and maybe prevailing in the appellate court. I, I don't, I don't see it, but, uh, th- there's some, there's some lessons to be learned here to, to avoid, uh, this problem. The other thing that's important is that the plaintiff was quite, or the defendants rather were quite clear that. If you make us have to defend this 2011 care, we got to redo all this discovery. And I say that because I, having just written a column uh, for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, where I talk about defendants needing to talk about equities in order yep. to, in order to, uh, you know, we oftentimes as defendants argue, you know, strict adherence to the law, the statute, the rule, whatever it happens to be that we're arguing for, and sometimes that comes off rather harsh, and and courts oftentimes exercise equitable power as an escape hatch to get around problems that uh, if they don't like the result. We saw that in the Eigner case. We saw that in the Davis versus Pace case. Those might be the cases that are the subject of my column. And the <laughs> and, and so what the what plant what defense counsel here, Appley here before the second district was very quick to do is say, hold it, we have substantial prejudice here. We have to redo all these depths because the plaintiff may not want to talk to the uh, to them about the 2011 care why would they they got their expert but right. we need to talk to right. these people about the 2011 care some of these are subsequent treating physicians maybe they'll have something to say that may be helpful to us we need them so uh you know, we've got to redo these depths and the court seemed to be at least listening to that to that theory and uh, that that this is a substantial prejudice to the defendants if all of a sudden you're going to start talking about a, an incident of care that you haven't pled um, so it, it's a, it, it's an important and interesting case. It'll be, it'll be, um, we'll see how quickly they come back on this. Um, it, it, uh, it, it's, there may be some lessons in there, uh, on, on what to do and what not to do on these. 
Uh, Dan, do you have uh, anything more to add on that one before we go to our prediction sure to go wrong? The only thing I'd say is is to reiterate your point, Pat, uh, about young lawyers or people that are new to a, a given area, how important it is to have people that really understand the area of practice because, again, we may get some lessons here, but uh, as we've talked about in this show, there, there are a lot of uh, technical and actual you know, procedural rules that can trip up uh, the unalert advocate and, and can do harm to your client's position. And so I, I think this is a great example, like you said, of, of you know, really having somebody that understands these things and how you properly plead, perhaps. And the lessons that we'll see from this, I think, are going to be important for practitioners in this area. I, I remember when I came across the Foxcraft rule as a uh, as a young lawyer. Um, I don't. I can't remember if if I was this if it was we were the we were to be the appellant or the appellee. I can't remember. But I was looking up this, this principle. Do I have to replete it? And yeah. somehow it was one of those days where I was got very lucky and found the case in like five minutes of my of yep. the beginning of my research. I find it and I'm going, oh, okay. Well, that's easy enough. That tells me the answer. Um, replete it. <laughs> right. right. So what? Right. So I, I learned it and it's burned into my brain having having had to learn it by looking at it when I needed to. Uh, and so that's the sometimes that's how it happens. But, you know, maybe you, your research, you wouldn't be so lucky. And now you made a mistake. So, right. Um, you, you, I got lucky and found it very yep. quickly that day. Sometimes yep. you don't get so lucky. Yeah. Well, part of luck is is being uh, diligent. So, uh, as the saying goes, it's ninety eight percent perspiration and two percent inspiration, or whatever the heck it is. But uh, yes, in any event, you, you need to do thorough research, and sometimes you find a case right away, and sometimes you have to dig and, and dig. So, with that, let's go to our predictions. West Bend, what do you think on that, uh, Pat? Affirmed. I, I, I agree. I I, I think that, I don't like uh, it, but I yeah. think it's going to get affirmed. I, I do too. Um, Wooden versus U.S. I, I think the defendant wins here. I don't see how ten sequential burglaries of the see. I said it right that time. In yeah. in one mini mart or one mini mart in one mini storage isn't a single occasion. I I just I don't see that. And I and I think and lurking in the background is a Sixth Amendment problem. So, yep, yep. And then Olson, Olson uh, affirmed. So so Wooden's a reversal. Well. And Olson yep. is an affirmance. I, I think that's all right. So let, let's turn now. We, we only had two decisions this week. We're, we're uh, that uh, on our prediction sure to go wrong. And uh, we, uh, as I've promised. We're lawyers, not mathematicians. Ah, so our black box appears to be off a, a bit. Uh, we, we've been posted online about our record. It's actually 73, 14, and 7. There were two late uh losses uh, the, the last week that we covered on, on the Sunday show. Um, so our scorecard's a bit out of whack. Um, we apologize for math errors, but alas, uh, uh, math skills are not. Our record continues to be very solid. Also for listeners, uh, I've long promised to go through cases we've covered and provide an index of those decided. We will do that at some uh, point. Some of us we've talked about are decided, you know, week after we do this show, um, while others might languish. Today, we only had, uh, as, as noted, we had two cases. Both were correct. The first was Rotor. This was the Supreme Court of Indiana case with the estate. And the court held in this case when Marcel Borchardine died, she left her estate and trust for her children. 
One pro- trust provision says that her son's interest will be distributed to him directly if he is unmarried at the time of her death. But if he is married when she dies, his interest will be held in trust. At issue is whether this provision is an unlawful restraint against marriage. We hold that it is not. The st- statutory prohibition against restraints on marriage applies only to a de- device to a spouse by will and not to other dispositions. We thus decline to apply the restraint against marriage prohibition to Borchardine's trust provision. And so the trial court had granted summary judgment for defendants, and it's affirmed. So anything else to add on that case, Pat? Mom did not like daughter-in-law. <laughs> that's right. What it, that's what it seems. <laughs> right. Right. So uh, that, that's, what, that's all I got to add. This is one where we really commended counsel for the appellant on his arguments because he they won in the trial court they lost in the appellate court and so it went up and this is one of the cases where they were they had not yet accepted transfer and we gave great kudos and i think well deserved as seen by the result that the court took the case um i think in part based upon his argument uh at the beginning of of his oral argument that the case was important and should be taken because people needed to know the answer to this question in India. Right. So and that, kudos and to that lawyer. Yep. And the second case was German. This was the case with uh, respect to allegations of the bystander rule with respect to a disabled uh, child that had been. No, no, a, not a disabled child. This is the guy that got blown up. That, uh, yeah. That, this is the right. guy. This is the guy. Well, he didn't get blown up. He got. Yeah. He's, this is the one where we played the portion of the argument where he's down in southern Illinois and there's a fracking blowout. The and pipeline the, and the pipeline blower. blows up, and the his lawyer gave this very vivid description of yeah. stuff raining down on him. Fortunately, he doesn't get hurt, but he gets PTSD. No one else gets hurt apparently either, according right. to this opinion. Right, and so there was no. Buddy to be nobody to be within the zone of danger of because nobody got hurt except yeah. physically, physically, and mentally. This, this guy seems to have had some problems. This case reminds you of of the uh, revised Planet of the Apes movies, you know, in San Francisco where everything's destroyed, or a Marvel comic universe where entire cities get you know the buildings and pipes and metal and stuff gets thrown around and nobody you know people people die in those, but in this case. Yeah, this this is the case where he was running uh, frantically. He, he was told that if if the uh, pressure uh, was such that the things started shooting out of the sky, that he was to run and go to a ditch, which you know, he, which he did. But um, you know, the the good news here, I guess, for 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 German is is that number one, he didn't injure himself. Number two, that he was fit enough that it, in his sprinting to avoid these things, he didn't have any cardiac because that would have been a different case, probably. Yeah. Um, so, if, he had a, yeah. if he had a heart attack while he was running, yep, that would have <laughs> yeah. been a physical manifestation. Right, right. So, in any event, uh, that that those are the two cases today. Um, and with that, I guess we'll turn to the rule of the week. Uh, the rule of the week that that we're, we uh, chose is confession of error, and this is the legal practice where where the solicitor general of the United States, and his or her role representing the federal government before the Supreme Court of the United States admits that a lower court incorrectly decided a case and is therefore sent back for reconsideration. By confessing error, the Solicitor General or uh, an assistant Solicitor General, if it's not the Solicitor General uh, himself or herself, declares that the federal government's position, which prevailed in the lower court, was wrong. Uh, The Supreme Court typically then vacates the lower court's judgment 
and remands the case to allow the lower court to consider it in light of the confession of error. And as a side note, the Senate advanced uh, President Biden's pick, Elizabeth Prelogar, I think that's how you pronounce her name, last week. Pat, tools, uh, thoughts on this tool of, of the Solicitor General and the importance of confession of error? Well, I, thanks, Dan. And uh, she argued actually as acting Solicitor General, I think some, some of the yep. arguments back in the spring, at least a couple of them. Yep, she did. Uh, she argued. Uh, the... The confession of error rule is well beyond just the solicitor general. I mean, any party in state court, in Illinois state court, can certainly confess error, and there may be reasons why you want to do that in a particular circumstance. Um, it, it we've talked about on the show, and certainly amongst ourselves, Dan, the circumstances where the government decides to change its mind, and that obviously got a lot of play. Yep. When the Trump administration took over, and again when the Biden administration took over. This is another circumstance where where the government or any litigant can say, "Ah, eh, we'll change our mind," right? Uh, and as I said, it, because they just realized they just got it wrong. And yeah. which uh, happens? I, I mentioned I, I mentioned a circumstance on the show where uh, you know I confessed error. This wasn't in, in the appellate. Could you do this in the appellate court? I did. I did it at least one time in the trial court. I said, "Judge, I argued something. You agreed with me." I was wrong and you were wrong, as it turns out. We're going to do it this other way. Uh, in terms of who has the burden of proof in an insurance coverage case where the plaintiff is alleging uh, no coverage and the plaintiff is the insurer and we can't shift the burden in that way so long as we're the plaintiff, at least under these under that the facts of that particular case. So I, I, I've done it, uh, not in this quite this yep. way, but there's sometimes you do it because you just don't want, you don't want to waste the time. You realize there's a mistake been made and it's you have an obligation an ethical one. If you realize a mistake's been made, to not continue with the mistake. Yeah, and, and you, uh, well, you better get your uh, client's agreement on that. But if it's a, <laughs> you better get your client's agreement. But assuming you get your client's agreement, you have an obligation. And in one of the arguments last week, again, I, I don't remember which. There was a question by Justice Thomas of the uh, uh, non-governmental uh, advocate may have been in the CIA case where. Um, there was something about changing positions. The the uh, advocate said, well, the government's changed position. And Justice Thomas uh, followed up with the question, well, you've changed positions as well. So, um, again, uh, in interesting uh, tool uh, in the toolbox for advocates. Indeed. So with that, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we got a gold star. And uh, we will uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week with uh, another episode of the Podium and Panel podcast. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship 
Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.